Hello, welcome to Tea or Books, episode 89. I'm Simon. I'm Rachel. And in today's episode, we'll be looking at gardens. Do we care about them? <laughs> Everything just sounds like Alan Partridge, doesn't it? Um, and in the second half... Straightening the barrel is what it sounds like. <laughs> but the second half is a topic that is not scraping the barrel. It's, it's books that we've talked about for more or less the entire time we've been recording Tea or Books. That is Gilead and Home by Marilyn Robinson. Um, we might also put in a couple of other, her other books, but mostly those two. Uh, so, but yeah, before that, Rachel, how are you doing? How's life in lockdown too? I guess not not as lockdowny for a teacher as it is for some of us. No, it's um, it's much better this time around because obviously I still have to go to school every day. So I feel like my life is pretty much the same apart from I can't do any fun stuff when I'm not at work. Um, they say that I say I can't do any fun stuff because I live by myself. I can still, I've I've bubbled with another friend who lives by mm. herself, so we're still seeing each other, which is nice, and I've met, I'm, we can still meet people outside for walks, so, um, yeah, it doesn't feel as, as bad as last no, time, no. it's just, um, you just can't go to, you can't go to a bookshop, which is obviously a great sadness, and as we were discussing in the school staff room, why on earth aren't books classed as essential items? Exactly. That is a debate worth having, isn't it? Yeah, and have you come across this new bookshop.org that's launched? I have, yes, and I was trying to work it out yesterday. I actually went on there yesterday to have a look at it, and I, I couldn't quite understand how bookshops benefited from it. I mean, I'm a bit useless at understanding these sorts of things, but it seemed like and it's not a charitable enterprise, is it? No, to the best of my knowledge, they just give a higher percentage of the profits uh, to bookshops than Amazon does. So Right. Um, it's a bit like Hive that already existed, but they give more money. I think still the best thing to do is have a relationship with a independent bookshop or many independent bookshops. Yeah. Um, I I now just email to the Yellow Lighted Bookshop in Tetbury um, and give them a list of what I'd like, and they post them to me. How lovely! And it makes me feel like Helen Hanth. It's great. <gasps> yeah. Do you know what? The other day I was walking along. I can't remember where I was. I must have been in the strand somewhat no it wasn't on the strand no I was on the strand and I found a plaque that I'd never seen before and it said mm. this was the original site of the bookshop from um Helen Hamp's book I would imagine that plaque would be on 84 at 84 Charing Cross Road rather than on the strand yes that must be where it was yes, yes. <laughs> Cross Road. but it, I'm just trying to think because it's not it's not on the bit of Charing Cross Road you'd expect where the other bookshops are now so it was oh, it was okay. completely far away from where I'd expected it to be and it was oh I think it was outside a furniture shop and I just thought oh wow <laughs> I never because back in the day obviously that entire yeah, yeah. the entire road was full of bookshops and now there's only about three left sadly it's sad um, yeah. it is sad but no that's um oh that's really nice actually there's I mean there's not really as much option in London for independent bookshops there's sort of chain independent bookshops like Dawn's for example um yeah I mean this is the thing about uh Buying online is like Tetbury's nowhere, well, let's say nowhere, it's about an hour from me, so it's not, I wouldn't go there in normal times, but when I'm going things through the post, it doesn't matter where they are, they can post anywhere. No, that's very true, actually. Well, I get my books from Persephone, I've just ordered, I've just had my, the two new ones arrive, which is very exciting. Oh, nice. Yeah, so my final piece in my Dorothy Whipple puzzle has been filled by random jottings that I very random commentary sorry yes, which I've yeah. been looking for for years and have never found and I know that you've got a copy so you can be Are quiet. you no longer furious with me for having it no I'm not I feel 
absolutely fine now because I've finally <laughs> got my own copy and it's a lot thinner than I thought actually. I thought it was going to be a, a much sort of weightier volume and uh, a Wilkie Collins which is always a lovely autumnal read. Oh, nice. Have you started so, them or are you yeah. doing something else at the moment? No, I'm currently reading Oh the Brave Music on your recommendation, oh, yes. of course. Yes. One of your lovely women. What's the official name of the series? British Library Women Writers. British Library Women Writers. Yeah. And I had, um, just before lockdown, I went to go and see the new exhibition at the British Library, which is uh, on women, the women's rights movement. And I felt very proud and I went in the shop and saw the Aww. big display of books. And I thought, oh, Simon, look at that. That's <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah. for the week or two that people were able to go to that exhibition before it was presumably closed. But yes, it is. But um, hopefully not for not for much longer. I have a, a lively correspondence with the education worker at the British Library as I'm always booking trips there. And mm-hmm. I had a trip that to go to the exhibition, which we've now had to cancel. But we're hoping that we'll be able to to restart. But yeah, she's very sad because we were very excited about it. We were going to be the first school in uh, since lockdown. Oh right. And hopefully I'll still be able to take that crown when I yes. take my kids in. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm going to tell you what else I'm reading. Oh, yeah, uh, do, yes, I'm reading that. What else have I just read? I just read Expiation, which by Elizabeth mm. von Armin, which was the last... My I just finished the last tranche of Stephanie books I'd ordered over the previous lockdown um, when the new... <laughs> um, at Biennially came in and I thought right I've got, I've got to finish before I buy the new ones I've got to finish the ones from last time so I quickly finished Expiation um, which I don't know how I feel about it actually have you read it? No I've got it but um, have you yet to read it? I just I don't know I feel I feel like it really isn't her best okay. and, every, and the, the marketing material sort of made it out to be like this lost absolutely remarkable masterpiece that was head and shoulders above the rest of her her oeuvre and I just don't agree. Is it one of her more serious ones? Well I mean I think it's supposed to be serious but (laughs) um, I just couldn't really take it seriously because the whole the kind of the whole centre of the story is that um, Millie the main character so it starts I'm not spoiling the plot here because you find this out within the first few pages she's um She's her husband dies. He's very wealthy, and everyone thinks that she's the nicest person in the world, and you know that her husband adored her. And then they find out in the will that she's been uh, disinherited, and it says in the will, and she knows why. Oh, that's quite a fun premise, yeah. Which is a fun premise, but then it turns out that Millie's been having a quite a lackluster affair for the previous ten years. <laughs> lackluster affair. Um, and you know, because her husband is basically a complete prig who has no emotional warmth. Fine. That was prig, um, by the way. P R I G. Just want to make that clear. Did I not, did I not sound? Did that sound oh, like? Well, you <laughs> hovered on the edge. <laughs> I did definitely say prig. Um, and so the, um, the but she then spends the rest of the novel feeling like she has to be forgiven for having had this affair by doing all of this random stuff, and it's all just a bit and the fact that she feels really bad about having had this affair when she it doesn't sort of make sense to me why she would feel so bad about it it's just a very odd very like moralistic premise that's not really based on any actual Mm -hmm. strength of belief in the moral do you see what i mean that's really interesting maybe we should do it for a future episode because i've been meaning to read it Uh, and in fact 
one of the titles in the British Library Women Writer series is Father by Elizabeth Van Arnim. Um, have you read that one? I don't think guys? I have. I might Rich- have it on my shelf. Let me just turn around. They're literally right behind me. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't have Father, actually. Ah, we have to snap it up. Because, um, I mean, similarly, I think that is one that has been unjustly neglected and is very good. Uh, it's about a woman called Jen who's in her 30s and her father who's been a widower for many years is just gets re- is just getting remarried and she sees her chance to no longer be dependent on him and decides oh, right. to move off to the countryside so it's a, the, in some ways a bit like Lolly Willows by Sylvia Townsend Warner in in its premise but it's it's very funny but I was also having sort of a serious undertone and, and things to say about um dependent single women of the 1930s well um, that sounds like my kind of read maybe maybe a father versus expiation episode is up ahead of us yeah Watch the space, people. Yeah, sneak breathe. Um, Yeah. I have been reading, I've been on, I don't know if it's a binge, if it's only two books, but uh, some Michael Cunningham. um, Oh. Famously, of course, wrote The Hours, but uh, I took um, The Snow Queen on a holiday with me, um, which is his most recent book, I think, even though it was a few years ago now. Uh, His most recent novel, I think he's done short stories since then, but uh, about a bunch of people in... New York around the time of George W. Bush's second term in office. It starts off with the election, and they're all saying we can't possibly have a second term for the worst president in American history. And I thought, ho ho, just you wait, Michael Cunningham, just you wait. But uh, yeah, um, I just think his writing is so wonderful, and I thought it was wonderful in the hours. I've read a few others of his which I've really liked, but this this one I think. I don't know, something more, even even more special about it, which then led me to read Flesh and Blood, which I also really, really loved. It was very gripping. Um, so he's one of those few authors who can do beautiful writing that's also gripping, because normally I find writing that sort of get, keeps you going all the way through doesn't have time to stop for beautiful imagery or you know thoughts that aren't central to the plot, whereas he manages somehow to do both. Um, and it's 454 pages long, Rachel, and I still love it. Gosh, it's then. Well, and something we should say, which is very important, is that it was Simon's birthday yesterday. It was at the time of recording. Happy birthday, Simon. Thank you very much. I'm wearing my British Library Christmas jumper with books on that I got for my birthday. (laughs) Adorable. And tell us about the books that you got. (laughs) Yeah, so what books did I get? I um, got lots of books about reading that were on my (laughs) wish list that I now can't remember the titles of, but I'll put them in the (laughs) notes, maybe. Uh, I got The Letters of Tevi Janssen. Um, I got Dear Mrs. Bird that have had heard bad things about from you, but I will give a go nonetheless. <laughs> <laughs> um, I got I can't remember the title of it, but a book about learning things from Jane Austen, and it's not the Samantha Ellis one. Hmm. I'd go and get maybe I will go and get them. One second, I'm going to turn the cat on the floor. Yeah, no worries. Now I've cut this out of the editing. It's like I never moved at all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the other ones were, um, yeah, A Jane Austen Education by William Derenisevich. Oh, uh, how Six Novels that... Taught Me About Love, Friendship and the Things That Really Matter. Interesting. Sounds fun. A book about books. You'd love that. Love a book about books. Also, Dear Reader, The Comfort and Joy of Books by Catherine Rensenbrink. Rensenbrink? Don't know who that is. But, Lovely. Um, but book about books. Love it. And On Reading Well by Karen Swallow Pryor, which I think is about um, Christian faith in books. Oh. Um, yeah. Uh, as well as a couple of recipe books. So, did well on the book front. You did. Well done. Um, the other book I'm reading 
is by Sybil Bedford. It's ah. not one of her most popular ones. It's called Faces of Justice. Um, it's non-fiction, and it's about comparing the legal systems of France, Germany, of England, France, Germany, and Austria in 1961, I think. Oh, right. So I'm learning a lot about uh, mid-century law from courts, I guess, Um, which isn't a world that I'd necessarily run to, but she's such a good writer that she she makes it very engaging and interesting. And I don't think any of it's likely to still be true. But uh, I mean, not least because they still have the death penalty, but um, in the UK at that point. But yeah, very interesting. And I love Sybil Bedford. Yeah, I love her novels. And I've read some of her essays. it's interesting to see her in, in a different form. I certainly wouldn't have picked it up if, if it were by anybody else. No. Yeah. Interesting. So I suppose we've got to start on this topic now. <laughs> I should say, dear listener, that uh, my other suggestion of horses versus birds was vetoed by Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, I do think that is a step too far. <laughs> Before we do, we must say thank you to listener and my friend Barbara, yes. um, who is sending us lovely goodie bags. I've been, I've, I'm getting some Dean Street Press books, um, Doris Langley Moore's um, Not, what's it called? Not at Home. Not at Home has already arrived. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some others on their way. And what are you getting, Rachel? I'm getting a, a box of goodies from Betty's, which is very exciting. I can't wait. So kind of you, Barbara. Thank you, Barbara. Thank you very much. Um, very kind and we can delay gardens no longer <laughs> so a while ago we, we did an episode I enjoyed called Do We Do we Care What Characters Eat um, which is basically Do We Care About Food and Books and I this isn't quite the same but I think Do We Care About Characters Gardens is also potentially interesting <laughs> we'll short. see won't we, we will. what comes to mind well I think the most obvious book that comes to mind is The Secret Garden yes um, which you said that we've discussed before, but I don't remember discussing it. So um... <laughs> we did an episode comparing it to maybe Tom's Midnight Garden. Oh, possibly. Okay. Yeah. Well, no, that's not, that's another book about gardens. We think, isn't too. it? Yeah. Um, as I cannot remember for the life of me what I said about the Secret Garden before. I could be repeating <laughs> myself, but the Secret Garden was um, was my favourite book as a child. You can just imagine Victorian wannabe me lying on the floor reading that book <laughs> over and over again. Um, and one of the reasons why I loved it was because of the garden and the idea of, of there being this sort of secret overgrown place where a child could go and be hidden and get up to all sorts of mischief and, you know, not not be able to be held to any account by adults for it. Um, I spent my entire childhood trying to run away. Um <laughs> And, you know, arguably in many ways I'm still doing that in my adulthood. But it was very enchanting to me, this idea of, of this hidden space. And I think the fact that it was hidden, I mean, rereading it as an adult, she does find the way into the garden very easily. Um, <laughs> Doesn't a robin tell her where it is? Or a something? robin tells her and then yeah. rushes aside some of the of the ivy and there's the keyhole. And obviously the <laughs> key still works despite um, it having been locked for, for several years. Um, I, might, but, I might have bricked it up myself if I were that desperate for no one to get into it. But yeah, that's sure. right. But whatever, <laughs> it is what it is. Um, and it's it's a wonderful example as well of that very um, moralistic Victorian writing, and where the garden and being outside and having fresh air is seen as as 
vital to your well-being but mm-hmm. it's also that metaphor of the garden and the idea of um your spiritual growth your mental growth your emotional growth is tied in with your connection with nature and i really enjoy that exploration this i think is becoming more fashionable now i mean the growth of nature writing has has been enormous over the last few years and i think there's a much more of a sense of how important it is to connect with nature but um i think gardens are in some ways they're complicated because they're not really nature they are mm-hmm. humans a bit uh, kind of attempt to control nature in, in many ways but they mean so much to people in the sense that they they like in the secret garden for example it's the first time that mary has had the opportunity to do something for herself and to see the the benefit of what she's doing so she plants things and she's able to watch them grow and through that process she grows as well but it's it's like that that first moment of joy and that she's created she's helped to create something she's helped to bring something to life and nurture something um and i you know during lockdown there's been an enormous increase in people growing vegetables and um plants and flowers and things because people do feel that sense of connection and it's really interesting to see how i think in novels if a character loves a garden or loves gardening that's that tends to be a sign of a good character and if somebody doesn't like gardening or doesn't care for nature um then we're supposed to see them yeah, yeah. Badly. um so that's quite interesting but gardens are also places where magic tends to happen as well so there's lots of ideas that that go in there yeah i think you make a really good point that it's not nature but it obviously involves natural things because um you might get characters like lolly willows uh, or many others who escape from an urban environment to wilderness or to wild places or um woods any of that sort of thing uh, and then a garden's obviously a bit different as you say because it involves the person's choice it's something that they're involved in uh, that they're helping to create it's, it's maybe more of a uh, character arc involved in creating a garden than there is in going to wilderness. Um, yeah. And I really enjoy that in principle. I think my issue comes in with the fact that I don't know anything at all about gardens. Oop, sorry, there's a cat jumping on the table. <laughs> you can sit on my knee. Oh, no, you've gone the floor for him. Um, he thinks it's tea time. Well, it is tea time for us. Anyway, um, yes. <laughs> well, I say. So uh, if they, if the author expects us to know what things are and what they what they look like, if if it's all, oh, if we put the verdinias in the in the herbaceous border and we must get direct sunlight for our floremias. Um, I'm making up plant names at this point, but they might <laughs> they, they might be real things. Then uh, I can't picture it. I have, as you know, I have trouble picturing things that are described anyway. But I certainly can't picture plants that I don't know what they mean and I don't want to have to go and google them all and the only place I, I sort of find this is um Beverly Nichols gardening books which I absolutely love but the first trilogy uh the um down the garden path trilogy leans a little harder into expecting you to know what these types of plants are mm. and picture them whereas the second trilogy written 20 or so years later, the Mary Hall trilogy, which I prefer, is much more about village gossip. <laughs> and it's a bit more about the interior as well. And I can cope with the interior of a house. I know what stairs look like. Um, but uh, what I enjoy there is that the plants are things I enjoy least in Beverly Nichols gardening books. Uh, and similarly, in The Secret Garden, I know what 
some of the broad brushstrokes are like, but it's much more about the metaphor. It's much more about the experience. I'm not picturing a particular garden. Do you, I mean, I know you picture when you're reading much more than I do, but do you see that garden? Do you, do you know what's in it when you read or think um, about the secret garden? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm, I'm not very good on plant names either. So if, if there was a lot of specificity about, you know, a particular type of, of flower, I wouldn't necessarily be able to see in my head exactly which one it was or what colour it was. But I, I tend to have quite a powerful impression of what I think it would be like. Um, and the secret garden for me is just like covered in roses and, you know, tree branches. And I just think of it as a sort of tangled wilderness mm-hmm. I love. Um, but a sort of control, it, what, what I like about it is that, that nature has, taken back control over a mm, mountain mm. space and i think that's um that's something really special i did read the letters of christopher lloyd and beth chateau i think we know why i did this but uh, the period when i was in i'd really loved reading some collections of letters and was just picking up any i saw really uh, they're both famous gardeners apparently i have not had not heard of them before um didn't really understand anything they were saying but i got to the end <laughs> i more for their friendship <laughs> than for anything else uh, we mentioned Thomas Minot Garden there um, earlier. It's by Philippa Pierce, which, for those who don't know, is about a boy who is quarantined, very apt for this this season, uh, from his brother who's got measles or scarlet fever or something like that. Um, and he has to go stay with his uncle and aunt who live in a flat in a, in a house that used to be one big building and used to have an enormous garden. There is no longer a garden, but at midnight, Tom finds yeah. the garden still there. And also, it's still sunny, but that doesn't trouble him as much as the fact that there's a garden there. But, you know, he's not the brightest lad, but it's a lovely book. <laughs> um, and one of the things from that is certainly in the TV adaptation, I hope it's also in the book, is he's describing, or he's talking about some of the plants he's seen that night. And let's, I can't remember what it is, let's say it's begonia. And he's, and he, he talks to his aunt, she said, Oh, you wouldn't have begonias at this time of year. And I think if you're hinging your plot on an 11 year old boy identifying types of flowers, <laughs> you're in trouble. Things have fallen down. Because, yeah, the, the, and I think it's an A. Milne maybe mentions in an essay somewhere that there'll always be the readers who write and say, Oh, but they couldn't have seen this sort of flower at this time of year. That sort of thing, if you're in the gardens, if they're described in a book. And that's, the sort of thing that does not trouble me at all. I don't know no. if, if you've ever noticed anyone's horticultural wisdom. I, I don't care about that sort of thing. I'm happy for people to make up whatever they want to be in the garden and prefer it if they could just describe the colours of the flowers, really, and then I'll know what's going on. No, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you can imagine that there must be some people who are absolutely mm. bristling with irritation at reading descriptions of gardens and thinking, no, that plant wouldn't be flowering at this time of year and that, that wouldn't work in that soil and, that, and so on and so forth. I mean, I have absolutely no idea, so I'm quite happy to just take everything I read as read. Um, but I'm just trying to think if... Um, I, don't, I can't think off the top of my head, really, of, of any books that I've I've read that that really focus on gardens, which I feel like perhaps that's something that says something about my interests and that I obviously don't read anything um, that includes gardens. I mean, I've read lots of books about houses where people buy houses and the mm-hmm. garden is sort of, you know, part of it. But I tend to read books more about the countryside and people experiencing the countryside and rather than than man-made gardens. I mean, I've read um, The Thatched Reef, which mm-hmm. you recommended, which is the um, Beverly Nichols and um, there's obviously elements of, of the garden in there but he's also it's mainly about the house um and that's quite interesting but it's sort of well i mean it's 
it's supposed to be biographical, isn't it? But yeah, it's biographical, yeah. but I mean, he's obviously made a fair bit of it up. Um, yeah, I, just, I can't really. I'm yeah, not we've mentioned Elizabeth Flan in this, Elizabeth and her German garden. Um, yes. Which we did an episode on a long time ago. Yes, and the solitary summer, which are um, both feature the garden and are lovely. And I think the garden in Elizabeth's German garden is very much about her sort of having a healing experience, isn't it? Because she's in an unhappy marriage, and yeah, and I think it's one of the reasons that I like it less than some of her others is is the focus on the garden because again, I appreciate all the metaphorical aspects of that, but um, not necessarily the specifics. Yeah, it's a tricky one because I mean, for me, I don't really mind. I just like the idea of you know it all being very beautiful, and I sort of imagine lots of beautiful flowers and things, and it's just, it's. Uh, lovely to read about how she takes such pleasure from it and it's her place of escape um but even then she's still it's still a garden it's still an enclosed space that she can't really escape from and that whole novel is about her feeling quite trapped isn't it um in the situation that she's in i'm just you know trying to look here at other (laughs) things that i've yeah, so far we seem to have exclusively talked about books we've already done episodes on. But, yeah, um, I think we're both we're both struggling here, aren't we? Yeah. I think I like reading about gardens for sure, and I, I love um, imagining. I mean, uh, we've talked about this before. You know, you and you've already said um, just a minute ago that you find it quite hard to imagine things, whereas mm. I don't. And I, and I love imagining the settings of books and um, being in the kind of surroundings of where the characters are. But I find most of the books that I read. The, the setting would be the domestic interior rather than the exterior. And it is interesting that you don't often find, like, for example, in Jane Austen, I can't really think of any times when the garden is described in any particular detail. I mean, they go for walks in the parkland, but there's no description of flowers or things. I suppose at that time in history, you know, gardens, particularly in the large houses that Austen's characters are spending their time in, were largely designed as parkland with trees and, mm-hmm. and grass rather than formal flower gardens. Yeah, even Mansfield Park, which is very big on you know the perimeters and the going yeah. to order and that sort of thing, uh, is doesn't yeah I don't, I don't recall it talking about flowers specifically. No, perhaps oh, Jane wasn't much of a gardener herself. True, I get that feeling. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one book I did really enjoy is uh, Virginia Woolf's Garden oh. by um, Caroline Zub, which is she lived for a long time at Monk's house where Virginia Woolf and Leonard Woolf lived until Woolf's death, um, I believe. And for a long time it was tenant, you could tenant it if you agreed to do upkeep. Wow. Um, I know, doesn't that sound a dream? Uh, So owned by the National Trust now, but I think even for quite a long time, whilst it was owned by the National Trust, someone someone lived there and did that. Um, And part of her, I think, yeah, part of her job and the job of others was to make it look as it probably would have done um, when they lived there. There's lots of notes in her diaries and in Leonard's diaries and there are sort of plans, I don't know, all sorts of reasons why they know what she does talk about. And the reason I enjoy that so much is partly, you know, any insight into Virginia Woolf's life is very welcome. Um, but also it's, it's one of those sort of big coffee table books. And in fact, it's one of the two books I always use to... Um, put behind my microphone whilst I'm recording to have <laughs> so I'm looking at it right now Caroline Zub with Photography by Caroline Arbor what an appropriate name for a book about gardening oh that's um, a nice name isn't it uh, and yeah as I her photography is really beautiful and I don't have to guess what the plants and flowers and other things that 
that she describes looks like because the photos are right there because they've made it look like it would have done or as close as they can get um so while she's writing about it or quoting diaries about it all that sort of thing it's all surrounded by these beautiful pictures of it so it's a lovely coffee table book but also great content it's not just photos there's some good writing in there as well would recommend oh well there we are um well (laughs) we haven't talked about gardens an awful lot and we're probably missing extremely famous garden examples as usual but uh do you care about what characters gardens look like um well if the plot's central to the garden or that they're spending a lot of time in the garden then yes um but otherwise no because i think if it depends on the character if it reveals something about the character then obviously it's quite interesting but if it's just a sort of part of the setting it's a bit of an aside then i probably wouldn't spend too much time thinking about it i must confess yeah i think I would certainly not notice if a book never mentioned what was in the garden. And if a book was I saw was largely about gardening, I probably would not race towards it, given my ignorance. Um, so, I mean, I love Tom's Minute Garden. I love The Secret Garden. But on the whole, I'm going to say no. Sorry, okay. gardens and gardeners. Because, I mean, the, the book, the book, um, the little bibliophile world and the gardening world, there's a lot of overlap of that on Instagram, I see. Oh, right. So, yeah. <laughs> but... We've chosen our side. We do have a question for this middle section. How exciting. From Jen. Thank you, Jen, for getting in touch. Uh, I did. I can't remember if we've talked about this before, but she asks if for any tips on where to start with the British Library crime classics. Oh. Yeah. Well, I mean, I will say that in my experience, they are quite hit and miss. Yeah, they're a bit variable, aren't they? Yeah. Um, the ones I've enjoyed the most are the earlier ones that they printed um, in sort of the first couple of, of tranches. I think um, there's, there's a very large number of them now, and I would suggest respectfully to whoever does that that they are not being as selective now as they were at the <laughs> beginning. Um, the one I enjoyed the most so far is the Poison Chocolates case. Um, I can't remember the author, but you'll look it up, won't you? Anthony Barclay? I was going to say that, and I thought, no, you can't have remembered that. But no, I have. There you are. <laughs> you have. Um, Unless we're both wrong. No, I'm, it does ring a bell. Um, and I really enjoyed that one. It was it was very um, cleverly constructed, well-written, and I actually cared about the characters, which is quite a rarity for detective fiction. Um, so I'd really strongly recommend that one. Um, I've always also really enjoyed um, a couple of the ones that were set in London. So Murder Underground, I think, is mm. uh, by Mur- Muriel Hay or Doris, someone Hay? Yeah, Muriel Doris Hay, I think. Yeah. Um, she also wrote Death on the Cherwell, which which I enjoyed. Um, Charwell. Charwell, sorry, I don't know. Those of us who live in Oxford, well, let this slip. <laughs> Charl, I've never heard anyone say that before. It is actually quite divisive, but oh, it right. should be Charwell. It's is my it a, side of that debate. It is a scone, scone debate, or is it? Um, I think in as much as... Mm, it probably is. I was going to say there's one correct way and some people get it wrong, but I also think that about scone, so... or scone as i would say um so yes i would say those ones i would recommend starting with um i also think that um let me just have a quick check on the name of the one i'm thinking of because there is an author that i found 
quite reliable across all his oh the Christmas ones I also think are, are all very good I've not I've read all of the Christmas themed ones and I've not found a dud amongst them oh good okay um I'm just looking up this guy I thought A Scream in Soho was good by John Brandon the ones set in London are good I've um those are the ones I've sort of picked up on mm. I have read a couple that um the uh, one set in the Lake District and one set in I think it was Kent that I found very boring. Oh, there's John Bude. One of those would be John Bude, I guess. Yeah, John Bude, I think. I've heard mixed things about him, for sure. Yeah, some of the plots are just a little bit too centred around um, kind of stuff that seems a bit... Some of them I just feel like, like are a bit dated, frankly. And also... I'm rubbish at working out the plots of detective novels, and if I've worked it out after a couple of chapters, <laughs> then it's, it's not a great novel because I mean I literally never see anything coming. So, <laughs> yeah, I've definitely found I mean, Agatha Christie is such a wonderful person at plots, and that I find anyone else I read, and I've said this before on the podcast, is anyone else I read their plots don't stand up. So I've not read any that I think match her for ingenuity. Um, and often I get to the end and think, oh, I, well, either there was no way of guessing that, or it just seems a bit of a damp squib. But so I, so yeah, so I guess I look at the British Library crime classics more for how they're written, um, mm. and I love the Alan Melville ones, uh, Quick Curtain and Death oh. of Anton, and there's a couple others, largely because they're just really funny. Uh, Quick Curtain set in the theatre, Death of Anton is set around a circus, um, and. Yeah, the detective, I think Sergeant French maybe, um, is, he has this very witty rapport with other people and is writing sort of, for want of a better word, banter in a book is very hard to do, I believe. Um, and Alan Melville does it very well. Um, I, have, what else have I enjoyed? Quite often I just sort of race through them and then put them aside and forget which one I've read. So not, uh, The Secret of High Eldersham by Cecil Street is an interesting one that is not at all conventional and quite it's quite culty and strange, but I did enjoy reading it. And I think, I don't know if Mystery in White by uh, J. Jefferson Fajian is one of the ones that you, one of the Christmas ones that you were referring to, but I did really like that one. Mm. That train getting stuck in the snow and they all yes. go to a house. Where there's, yes, that one is very good. Yeah. Yeah, so um, I I haven't read any that I hated for sure. They're all and they're all you, know, you can whip through them. So yeah, I, I I'd recommend more or less buying the random if you see them. But but hopefully some of the suggestions we've given will help get you off to a more secure start, Jen. If you've not read any yet, yes, enjoy your discovery. Yes, there are millions of them now. There, I was yeah. going to collect them all when they started, and I think oh, I can't afford to collect them all now. But I do have yeah. a lot. <laughs> But I've not read the Poison Chocolates case, I keep meaning to. So. Yeah, it's very good. I don't really have any of them left anymore because I'm always giving them to people to read. And then I... Because the thing is, once I've read a mystery novel, I know what the ending is, so I I um, yeah, I don't yeah. really read them again. No, I've, I don't think I've ever reread a mystery novel. No, we mm. are. Mm. Maybe an Agatha Christie. Anyway, hope that helps. Uh, if anyone listening has favourites that we've not mentioned, do let us know and um, they might pass them on to Jen. Yeah. If you would like to ask us a question like Jen did, get in touch at teaorbooks at gmail.com. Whilst I'm here, I'll tell you, you can go to patreon.com forward slash teaorbooks to support the podcast. We're so grateful to people who do, people like Liana, Randy, and Elizabeth, 
and many more of you. Uh, there are different uh, rewards and things, or and some bonus episodes. Um, all the books and authors mentioned in this episode are at stuckinabook.com. You can find Rachel at booksnob.wordpress.com. And now I head on to the second half. Uh, right, Marilyn Robinson, you've waited for uh, five years, whatever it is, since we started doing this. <laughs> we did do her essays recently, but now we're finally doing her novels. Yeah. Would you like to introduce us to Gilead or to home? Um, gosh, I'll do Gilead, please. Great, do you want to start then? Okay, so Gilead is um, the form, is a first-person narrative, and it's the form of um, a kind of extended love letter, I suppose, from um, the preacher, um, John Ames, isn't it? Yes. Um, to his son, who is seven, uh, at the beginning of the book, and he's writing him a letter to give him all of the advice and story of his, give him advice, but also the story of his life, um, because he's recently been diagnosed with a heart condition and he could basically die at any moment. He's in his seventies at this point. Um, and it's through this letter that we learn about him as a person and about his philosophy of life, his faith. Um, he's, a, he's, um, always lived in the town of Gilead in Iowa. And it's about his friendship with um, the, I can't think of his name. Reverend Broughton. Reverend Broughton. Robert Broughton. Robert Broughton, who is um, the father of a large family. And John Ames is the godfather of their children and they're very close. Um, and, And there's been a great tragedy in Ames's life in that his first wife died giving birth to or giving birth or shortly after the birth of their mm-hmm. of their child who also died so he he's and he never got remarried until all of a sudden in his 70s he he meets Lila and has um this child with her and it's it's a book about yeah his experience of loss of grief of life um you know lived under the shadow of that and then the thankfulness he feels at what he's been given late in life but the kind of bittersweet sense of loss in knowing that he won't get to live to enjoy it for very long so it makes it sound very sad but it's not a sad book um yeah Yeah, there's yeah there's sort of melancholy to it but it is just a beautiful book yeah um so home is the second novel in the inverted commas series we'll talk about that shortly uh it's set more or less during the same time period i don't know if it's quite the same beginning and end but it's set over at robert broughton's house the other reverend um who it's it's in the third person but the perspective we most often get is that of glory one of the daughters um, of six children maybe um and jack who is the wayward son uh has come back to see well they're not entirely sure why he's there for much of the time but um he was a sort of tearaway uh as a teenager he appears in gilead in in, in john ames memories as this sort of callously cruel person um, who as a teenager and younger than that he disappeared off when he became an adult he's not really been in touch he didn't come home for his mother's funeral he doesn't he hasn't spoken to any of these people um, Robert Broughton has not seen his son for I think 14 15 years maybe um, and just really really wanted to see him again uh, and he has now come back he's much quieter and subdued than the than the um, Jack that we've heard of elsewhere and yeah, it's it's a it's basically all about families and distances within families and forgiveness 
uh, and people not quite saying what they mean at any point. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's now four books in the series. They, they can be read in any order. Lila is a prequel to Gilead and Jack that just came out is a prequel to Home. Yes. Yes. Um, which I guess you've read now. Yes, I have. Yes. Yes. Um, we will talk about that later. But, yeah. uh, so when did you first read these books? So I was introduced to um, Marion Robinson when I lived in New York, which, um, as my friend who was in New York with me said when we had lunch last week, it's now been 10 years since we um, since we went, yeah. which is quite um, terrifying in many ways. I can't believe it's been 10 years. Um, yeah. But um, a lovely lady called Ellen who um, took me under her wing recommended me many 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 wonderful novelists she used to run um the Barnes and Noble bookstore in New York so she knew lots and lots about books and in particular American authors that I hadn't come across and she said to me you know you must read this and I think it had come out I can't remember when Gilead did come out but it must have been fairly new um and I read read it uh, I was I wasn't sure about it I mean the cover didn't particularly excite me the story sounded a bit you know I wasn't sure it was particularly dynamic but I read it and I was just blown away. And in fact, the the second I stopped, I finished, I just started all over again. It was the first time mm. I've ever done that with a book. Um, I just loved the praise. I just found it so moving and um, just, yeah, just incredibly arresting as a character. Like it's the first book I, I've really, and the first character, I suppose, that I've, I've really felt was real. And mm. I, I had been allowed into his his mind and I think Marilyn Robinson for me what amazed me the most is like she's writing the story of a 70 year old man and as a woman who's younger than who was younger than that when she was writing the book I just thought what an imaginative power you must have Mm. to be able to create that person who's so different from you so realistically and so movingly and so convincingly um which puts paid to this whole current argument that nobody can write anything that doesn't necessarily relate to their own experiences but you know that's another debate um but yeah so i i read that and then i read it home must have just been published because i um i read that straight after that was available but um lila had not been published at that point um and i very and i loved that too and for me it's quite hard to say which one I like the best. And I, I love the fact that they're both told from completely different perspectives, but you've got this interweaving of the same stories and the same lives. And I think that's the the joy of reading all of these books is that there's so much in them. I, I think it tells you how well-developed the characters are that mm. she's been able to write four books and still not really run out of material. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and of course, you will be called on at some point today to say which you like best, but not okay. yet. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I read Gilead about 2010. I read, I bought it after reading your review of it. Nice. Um, so I thought I have to read this. I probably read it several years after that, if I, if, <laughs> <laughs> if I'm like anything like normal. And I read Home just when Lila came out because I got a review copy of Lila and thought I should read Home first. As it turns out, I probably didn't need to, but, um, I'm glad I did. Uh, and yeah, I th- as you say, I think particularly in Gilead, when it's because it's in the first person, it just captures. She's fully captured a person and their tone of voice, and you you know any sentence you'd say yes, that was something he'd write or something he wouldn't write, which 
you know, it's a sign that someone's really um, successfully created somebody on the page. Uh, I liked less in it the, the more historical stuff when he's remembering stories that his father and his about his father and his grandfather. Um, that I still liked them, but I was much more interested in his present day. Uh, I, anytime, I found it so moving anytime he talked about watching his son play. Uh, I'm neither of us are parents, but, uh, but I did just think she captured, I don't think Mary Robinson's a parent for that matter, but she captured that, um, that the power of the love of just seeing someone you love doing something really ordinary and just being overwhelmed by how much you love them. And I found that really touching, particularly as you say, he's got that tinged with the idea that, um, he won't get to see his son grow up. He might, he doesn't know how much longer he has to live. Probably not that much longer. Um, yeah, very, very moving. Yeah. Um, I also just love it. It's very, very rare to come across a great, good novel about faith. And it, he, he's a, obviously a Christian. He's a minister. Uh, Marilyn Robinson's a Christian. We're both Christians. <laughs> it's, I just really enjoyed reading somebody, uh, writing genuinely about lived experience in a relationship with God and their understanding of the Bible and their understanding as well as, you know, church politics and, church and theology and those sorts of things. It's, there's no big dramas about his faith. There's no conversion or losing his faith or doubting or anything like that. It's just a very realistic uh, and thoughtful portrayal of, of life as a Christian that is very, I've certainly not come across from any other writer that I can think of. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's I think it's it's quite rare as well in being a book that's not in any way preachy at all. Mm. It's just exploring the lived experience of what it is to have faith, essentially. Um, without trying to hit you around the head with it. Which um I think makes it such a powerful book because it's accessible to everybody. Um and It's interesting because my book group did it recently and most yeah. people really liked it. But one person just said I hated it. She partly said it, which she found it really boring, but partly she said it's just it's just about preachers and preaching. It's like, well, yes, it is about preachers and preaching, I guess, but it's not it's not just about that. It's about everything. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> uh, the thing. That's what I and I, I do see why some people would say it's boring. I mean, we were actually talking. I was talking about this to my um, sick forms kids the other way, the other day. I can't remember. Oh, because we, we're doing to the lighthouse at the moment, and they were like, "But nothing happens." And I was like, "Well, yes, but everything happens." And it's one of those books where you know, no, nothing does happen. There is no action, but there, it's all about the, you know, the emotional development, the emotional experiences that people have, and ultimately, that is really for many of us all that does happen in our lives. Most of our lives mm -hmm. are lived in our own heads, and. I think that ability to sustain an entire novel based on somebody's reflections on life and love and faith and, you know, memory and all the rest of it, I just think is a mark of real genius. And I do think like there are moments in the book where, I mean, I was just sort of overwhelmed to just read like emotionally just reading mm -hmm. it because that, that sense of just sadness of knowing that you know he's not going to get to to see his little boy grow up and yeah these moments where he is just watching him from the window doing nothing outside and just loving him yeah there's obviously a bit more distance in home because it's not the first person mm. uh but i find glory such a wonderful character yeah um, yeah so she's she's lived at home all her life she's the last uh, child who stayed behind she's basically been left looking after her father um she 
she also writes about faith in a much less certain way. She just doesn't really know where she stands, I guess. Um, but the book is also sort of like parable uh, of the prodigal son in some ways. So, I mean, I mean, very obvious ways, I guess. But uh, Jack coming back is not quite the prodigal son because he's not um, repenting particularly. He's, he's not. He's giving his cards pretty close to his chest. But we do see from Glory some of the, the older brother in that parable thinking, I was here the whole time. Uh, I never let you down. Why is he the one that you care so much about now? Um, she has seen the parameters of her world have never expanded. There was a brief period where there was someone she was in love with that didn't go well. She's not been completely honest about that with her family. Um, but I found the conversations that she had with Jack some of the best things I've read by Marilyn Robinson, I think, because they're such masterclasses in this idea that both people are feeling so deeply and not quite saying what they mean and being very wary of what they do say. And there's love there, but there's also a lot of fear. Um, they're, they're like trapped animals trying to work out if there is safety in what they want to say to the other one. And she does it so well that you can work out always what, what they, well, maybe not with Jack. Jack's a bit of an enigma, but with Glory, you know what she's thinking, what she's not quite saying, what what she wants him to say um and it's all just balanced so well and what i find extraordinary is that she ne doesn't edit she just writes one draft and she's done which she? i know i was listening to an Gosh. interview she did with um calm toyvin which is actually a terrible interview he's a very bad interviewer but <laughs> she was, <laughs> he basically just interviewed himself when she just happened to be there um but but she was wonderful when she was able to speak about her in writing and not just <laughs> listen to him talk about Henry James. But um, oh right, okay. But he was he was silenced for a while when she said that I don't edit. I just I mean she must do a lot of planning and thinking and all that sort of thing for years, I'd imagine. Um, but otherwise, she just sits down and writes that ex that extraordinary prose. Gosh. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, what do you what find talent? About, what, what do you think about home and being a bit further away from the? from the character speaking I, I find found it a very powerful book in the sense of like everything you're saying the sibling relationships the, the that kind of underlying um anger i think that glory has mm -hmm. that f feeling that you know she has she's missed out on life somehow she feels left behind um and i think there is a real understanding there in that sense of entrapment as a woman and feeling also like, mm. you know, being a, a now single woman, she was married. She was engaged, wasn't she? Not rather married. Uh, maybe, yeah. There's been a... I can't remember mm. exactly. I, it's been a while since I read it. But, um, the yeah, there's there's been a relationship. She has moved away. The relationship is broken down. And it's just assumed that because she's single now, she will, she will bear mm. the responsibility of their father. Um, there's no consideration that she might want to do anything else and i think the, what robinson does say well in the book is is rivalry within families um and the difficulty of juggling those relationships mm. and those feelings because there are so many feelings in families aren't there and so many things that no one ever says because nobody wants to upset the apple cart and um 
resentments and rivalries between siblings and rival rivalry for parents' affections and a feeling that, you know, your parent loves you the best. I mean, you know, even as adults, we all still jokingly say, you know, in our all right in our parents' birthday cards and things, your favourite, mm-hmm. your favourite. And I think Glory has always felt like she's never been seen and she's never been valued for who she is. Mm. And that complete resentment she has towards Jack for... Uh, mucking everything up but still being the one that her father cares about the most is I think really powerful and really true and I think writing about siblings is really difficult Um, and it's one of the only books I've read that has really for me kind of been able to express all of those tumultuous feelings of like love and rivalry and um, tension sometimes and because I mean it's not an it's not a straightforward relationship it's unlike any other isn't it i mean i love my siblings more than anything but there's nobody that can annoy you more right so (laughs) um it's yeah it's just really really powerful and i think writing it in the third person as well is an interesting choice because i was expecting it to be told through glory's perspective Mm -hmm. and it's not so you've got that bit of distance and it's not and it enables there to be more of a because you know Gilead we are so much in John James's head, and in this book you're able to kind of zoom out a bit more and see the characters from lots of different perspectives and to see other people they interact with other people. So um, it yeah, feels like a very different yeah. book, and it is interesting how you can read them all separately, but I do think they enrich each other if you do Definitely, read them together. Yeah. And I found going back to these after having read Lila quite a few years ago now I guess but she's such a shadowy figure in these books you just you obviously see her mm. through John Ames' eyes and in, in Gilead and he he doesn't think she's perfect but not far off uh sees her as this wonderful gift in t- to in you know towards the end of his life has just revitalized his life given him a son uh loves her as a person but but he most of what he reflects on is the, his he's so astounded that this miracle's come into his life uh, home, we see a bit more of her, but she's still sort of just in the background. Um, but once you've read Lila and know a bit more about her background, um, in quite desperate background, and the sort of uh, person, you know, uncertain and all these sorts of things about her, you you've, you feel like Marilyn Robinson knew that when she was writing these books, and the, you get those little glimpses. There's one line in Gilead I really liked where someone, she's talking about being poor, and she said, there's, there's no good way to do it, and I've tried more or less every way. Um, which to me shows that she's, you know, can be quite quick witted and, and funny, but also quite, you know, she's definitely lived a life. Um, and yeah. yeah, I agree with you reading and particularly going back after having read Jack, which is about, um, Jack living where, where he is when he's not in Gilead, uh, and living with, um, or starting a relationship with an African American woman in a, in a state where that was illegal at the time. It wasn't actually illegal in, in Iowa where, where Gilead is, but obviously societally extremely difficult. Um, yeah, reading, he's such a sympathetic character in Jack, because you, 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 again, it's a third person, but you see so much of what he's thinking and what he's feeling and his, the damage that's been done to him. That, I mean, when I read Gilead, I hated him. When I read Home, I liked him a bit more. And when, now I really like him and I look back and see the, the pain and the hurt in his life. Um, so I think, yeah, as you say, reading, keep, keeping rereading these in any order they all just flow into each other and inform each other and she's just building up this canvas beautifully this small community 
Um, I'm yeah. assuming you love Jack as well. I think you messaged me saying you did. Yeah, I did. Um, I remember finding Lida quite hard going when I read it, um, and I've only read it once. I think I was not in a in a in the right place to read it when I did read it. So I do want to go back and reread that. It'll be a, a winter project. Yeah, yeah. One after the other. Yeah, so I've reread Gillian and Home this year, and I've read Jack, so I just need to reread Lila now. Right. Before I start all again. Um, yeah, gosh. I mean, just on the sentence level, she's such a wonderful prose writer. And when she's writing the third person, she has opportunity to be as you know, poetic as she likes. Well, obviously, in the first person, she can only write what that character would write. Um, so that's one nice thing. I, I do miss the immediacy of, of being in that person's mind, I guess. But um, they both have with advantages, I guess. Yeah. So, which would you choose? It's very hard to decide. Mm. You go first. Okay. <laughs> well, when I first read them, I was definitely Gilead. I really liked them both, but I just loved Reverend John Ames so much um, that he won it over for me. Rereading them, I've seen uh, so much more in Home. Uh, I think it's such a rich book. I think I still am just Gilead, but, uh, but even, I mean, even rereading re Jack has made me appreciate home all the more. So it's tricky. Um, yeah, it's, I think it's one of the hardest decisions we've ever had on to your books, <laughs> and, but I am going to just squeeze <laughs> Gilead. <laughs> Thank goodness I can keep them both. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, I think I'm going to go for home because, um, for me, home is, I don't know, it's both, to me more than Gilead and both of them spoke to me incredibly deeply and they're both incredible novels but I think Home is yes is well I remember when I initially read them I thought nothing could be better than Gilead and then I read Home and I thought wow this is this is another level now yeah okay so that's one vote for Gilead one vote for Home um yeah uh, we, we finally got there very hard oh very hard if I could have had both of them I would and I think maybe Jack's my favorite of all of them now Oh, really? I did love it. Oh, wow. Uh, tricky. Maybe we'll do a Jack and Lyder episode one day, five years from now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, in the next episode, we're looking at two novels that have just come back into print by Dorothy Evelyn Smith. That Those are Oh, the Brave Music and Miss Plum and Miss Penny. Or is it Miss Penny, Penny, Miss Plum? One of those. Can't remember. <laughs> but uh, you know what I mean. Uh, yeah. Looking forward to doing that. Um, stay yeah. safe everyone yeah and... look after yourselves yeah. thanks for listening bye thanks for listening bye